interesting things that emerged out of the infamous year 2020 was the language and idea and concept of a COVID wedding. And I put that in quotes. Some of you guys, that's triggering because you went through it. Others of you guys, I'm pretty sure one degree of separation from someone who had to deal with that. And basically, obviously, we all know the coronavirus caused massive disruptions all across so many different things. One of the main things that it disrupted were the plans that so many people had to get married. And I know for some of you in this room, that was the case as well. So what ended up becoming a a common situation during COVID for a lot of people is they would get COVID married, which was basically they would go to a courtroom and they would legally get married on paper and have a COVID wedding. But then they would plan to not after that have what most to refer as the real wedding after that in order to, in a sense, complete their wedding and marriage in a way, right? And again, I'm sure many of us are familiar with this concept. Now, most of us understand that COVID wedding or not, a couple is legitimately legally married the moment that they sign papers and make vows, be it in a courtroom or whatnot. We all get that. And yet, we also understand and we don't ask questions when somebody says, I also want a public ceremony, right? Because... We understand when they say it doesn't necessarily feel like we're married. It doesn't feel official. It doesn't feel solidified and meaningful without that public ceremony where we exchange rings and vows, not just to ourselves, but in the presence of friends, family, and witnesses. The reason is, we all know this, is because the wedding ceremony and exchanging of rings, it is this powerful, sacred symbol of the reality that is happening before our eyes, which is... Two individuals are coming together, are committing to one another publicly to become one, and are vowing that my life is no longer just about me, but until death does us part, I vow to love you, to care for you, and serve you. Now, I share this because most agree the wedding is one of the best analogies to understand what takes place in baptism, right? Baptism is to your relationship with Jesus— what your wedding is to your relationship with your spouse. Baptism is meant to be an absolutely sacred, special, powerful, spirit-filled practice that encourages the church and visually portrays and displays the glory of the gospel to all who witness it. And it's a very tragic thing that I can say with relative confidence in our context today Most people in the church feel apathetic and indifferent towards baptism. Similar to Lord's Supper. We conceptually get, sure, it's it's important, but functionally we kind of view it and treat it as just this dry religious practice that the, the church sometimes does. One way you know you fall into this category is whenever baptism is talked about or you say, hey, a brother's just getting baptized, very little to no excitement. It's just another thing doesn't excite you in the way that the Bible seems to talk about how exciting it should be. And I really hope to change that through the word and through the preaching today. To not only inform us, but to make us care in the way that Bible, the Bible seems to talk about it. Okay, so we'll look at through baptism in three ways to do that. First, what is baptism? Just to lay a foundation, right? Not many opportunities to actually teach on it, so I'm going to take the time to make sure we have the same foundation. Secondly, we'll color it in a little bit and talk about well, what actually happens when someone is Put into the water, what is the significance of that? And thirdly, why should I even care about this? What's, what's the power of baptism beyond just some like religious duty? Okay, so first, what is baptism? 
So let's just lay a foundation and get on the same page and establish that Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, when he says, I have all authority in heaven and earth, we read from Matthew 28, in the great and final and clear commission to all who would call themselves followers of Christ, he makes it clear, baptism is something that all Christians are commanded to do, right? So it immediately sets the tone. If you didn't know, baptism, according to Scripture, is not just this optional supplementary practice for Christians. It is a clear command for all disciples, right? Look again. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So that is the telos end goal for every church and every Christian. Your life pursuit is to make disciples. And he's not unclear how to do that. How do you do that? Baptize and teach everything. Baptism is critical and central to the plan that God has to make disciples of all nations. And we see this start to happen at the birth of the church. The first instance we see of baptism in the early church is in Acts chapter 2. So Jesus ascends into heaven. The Holy Spirit descends and comes down on the day of Pentecost. And we see that one of the first recorded sermons from someone outside of Jesus is the apostle Peter. And if you ever want to know how they preached back then, he is a heavy-hitting preacher. In Acts chapter 2, he basically preaches the gospel, talks, tells all the Jews, hey, Christ, who you thought was just this guy, he was actually the Messiah, and he preaches the gospel to them. And the first pattern and practice of baptism we see, it should be up there, is in Acts chapter 2, verse 36 to 38. He closes his sermon in verse 36 and says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when they hear this proclaimed, they were pierced to the heart. Let me make a caveat here. Anytime you are genuinely hearing God's word, it does something to you. It should pierce your heart. It should leave you changed a little more than when you walked into the room. Okay? And that's something to note. That's what the word of God does. It is powerful. Okay? They were pierced to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Because the word never comes out void, it always elicits a response. And Peter said, this is your response. Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And following that first instance, many, many instances follow that create this pattern that you'll see throughout the New Testament church in the book of Acts, which is a proclamation clearly of the gospel of Christ. The people hearing and being convicted of their sin in light of the gospel of Christ. And then this pattern and call to respond, therefore, repent and be baptized. Always married together. Obviously, I'm not going to do a full course about, about this. But one more other instance, just so you can see another example of this, is in Acts chapter 8. It's talking about as the gospel is spreading. It says, but when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ... Both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself believed, and after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere. So we're seeing the tip of the iceberg of this pattern throughout the book of Acts, which is baptism first. It is a practice directly tied to a response to the gospel. Okay? And it is not a stretch to say in the New Testament church to be Christian is to be baptized. There was no such thing as an unbaptized follower of Christ. That's why we live in a unique point in redemptive history where you have Christians who say they follow Christ, but they are not baptized. That's actually an alien concept to the scriptures. Okay. Now, quick word, shifting a little gears, what actually does baptism mean? 
right? It's just religious lingo for a lot of us. What does it actually mean, okay? Now, let me just lay it out to you straight. Nobody argues that the word comes from the original Greek word baptizo. Literally translate to mean to dip or to immerse. That's just what it means, okay? And everyone actually also agrees, no matter where you come from, what spectrum you're in, that the most common form of baptism in the New Testament was baptism by baptizo, which is immersion or submersion. Okay, there's some examples of that. And if you're curious, again, I'm going to plug the seminar maybe five times throughout this message. So go ask all the questions. I create the tension and then I defer you to Tom. That's what I'm going to do. I'll say, there's a problem here. Go talk to Pastor Tom, right? Now, just to clarify, this does not mean that immersion, therefore, is the only valid way to baptize. Okay, I don't think that's necessarily the case. All that we're saying, again, because many of us come from contexts where we've either seen or we've personally been either sprinkled or there's other methods. I personally grew up in that context as well. So we're not saying that immersion is the only mode that is legitimate. All we're saying is that it's the most commonly practiced in the early church. And that there's no question about that. Now, again, like I said, if more questions are raised or you're curious about this, Nothing would make us happier. I feel like that means I'm doing my job, and it would make us show that you care. Uh, I say this very carefully. We always say we'd rather you have a conviction from your understanding of Scripture that is even different from ours, but at least you are searching the Scripture than you care to know. Okay? That is far better than somebody says, I actually don't really care. It doesn't matter to me, okay? So that's kind of where we stand as a church when it comes to that. So that's the broad but important explanation of what baptism is, just a cursory overview, and how our church believes and summarizes it according to our statement of faith. And I'm going to bring it up here, because otherwise no one will ever look at this, and we wasted all our time putting it together. So I'm going to plug, we do have a statement of faith, and this is what it reads, according to our understanding of Scripture. Baptism is intended for those who have publicly professed their faith in Christ. In obedience to Christ's command, believers are baptized by water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptism is a visual and symbolic demonstration of a person's union with Christ, which we're going to touch on in a bit. In the likeness of his death and resurrection, it signifies that a former way of life has been put to death and vividly depicts the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. Amen. So if anybody asks you, what is baptism? What does your church believe about baptism? Why did you get baptized? Now you have something to refer to and an answer to give. So we've established clearly, one, Jesus commands all of his followers to be baptized. Two, it was regularly practiced as a response to the gospel message in the early church. And three, the most common mode in the New Testament church was through immersion. Though we're not saying that is the only valid mode per se. Now that is the 2D black and white understanding of baptism just so we can lay a foundation. But rarely does 2D black and white thing motivate us or excite us, right? So let's make it a little more 3D because life is lived that way. Let's color it in a little bit. Why is baptism so significant and beautiful? So baptism is meant to be this powerful symbol. What does it symbolize? Right? You go to a wedding, you see a husband and wife look at each other lovingly each other's eyes, and they put this nice piece of jewelry on each other's fingers. Everybody knows it's not just an exchange of jewelry, very, very expensive jewelry, but rather something's going on in that moment. It is communicating something. It is symbolizing something. It's not just this act of putting on a ring on the finger. And in the same way, the question is, what is being communicated and symbolized in a public profession and baptism of a follower of Christ? Because if you really think about it, and this might be the case for a handful of you, if you've never heard of baptism before, you have no concept or context, 
you come to a baptism service, you see someone dressed in shorts and a dark shirt, and they're submerged in water. That's weird. Let's just acknowledge that, right? Like, could you imagine if you are totally never been churched in your life, you come in here and we're like, eat this bread, it's a body, drink this, this is blood, and outside we're going to dump you in water. It's just really weird, to be honest. Unless you understand, right? Unless you understand the context. That's why weddings are beautiful. Because if I just gave you a ring, that's, that's meaningless. You have to understand what is being communicated. And there's at least three things that baptism symbolizes for the one being baptized. The first and arguably most important is going to spend the most time here. When someone is baptized, it signifies a new identity. A new identity. One of the most common themes in the New Testament is the idea that there are essentially two different versions of you. There is the old version of you before Jesus enters your life. And there is the new version of you that Jesus gives you and calls you into as you accept and follow him. Okay, there's the old you and the new you. And one of the main things that baptism communicates and symbolizes is how the old you is put to death and the new you is risen and brought to life. Paul communicates this clearly in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, okay? And that terminology Paul loves to use because it so accurately depicts what a Christian is. You are now in Christ. You are bonded together with him. The fancy theological term for that is you are now in union with Christ. He is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. This is the reality of what it means to be a Christian. You are in Christ if you are a believer of Christ, okay? Now, the idea of being in Christ, like I said, is one of Paul's favorite designations. But what does that actually entail, to be in Christ, to be united with Christ? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's what Romans 6 says, right? So Romans 6 starts with a simple question that I think we have to answer because a lot of us struggle with this. It's this thing. Is grace a get-out-of-hell card? I'm forgiven. I'm made right with God. So can I just do what I want? Can I just party? Can I just do whatever I want? Can I sleep around? Can I just enjoy life and live it up because I, I'm not going to go to hell, right? Because Jesus saved me. This cheap grace that a lot of us struggle with. And obviously, no. Because Paul says to me, right? He says, are you unaware? Or he says, like, should I just sin so that grace may abound? And Paul says, no. Absolutely not. But notice the logic he gives for that. If you are a good, moral, upright Asian like me, when someone is sinning in your community group, what you'll tell them is like, hey, stop being bad. God's not happy with you. Good Christians are going to live that way. You know, do you notice how subtly moralistic living is embedded in the way that we treat each other and each other's sins too? Right? You've got to live the right way. You're not living the right way. That's why people feel so judged all the time. Because we make it about righteousness and moralism, and you have a high ground because I, I'm not doing what you're doing. You've got to stop doing that. Paul doesn't say that. Look at Paul's logic. He says, no, you can't continue sinning and even saved by grace. Because he points to the deeper reality of your identity and says, it doesn't make sense for you in Christ to continue in sin because you are dead to sin. Let me unpack that a little bit. He says, the version of you that could not help but to just be enslaved to sin, it's gone. It's dead. Track with me in verse 3 to 6 in Romans. 
Are you aware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Verse 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin. Pause there. How many of you guys feel like you're just ruled by sin? You can't help but stop sinning. Everything you do is tainted with just your struggles and your sins and your temptations. This glorious truth you need to speak into your soul today, which is in Christ, that enslavery that you had is rendered powerless in Christ. You are no longer enslaved to sin. Paul's saying that is an objective reality as a follower of Christ. And what he's saying is that that powerful reality that baptism depicts is that as you are submerged and immersed into water, that through faith, that old self is literally buried and put to death in the same way that Christ was dead and buried. And we are made new and resurrected to new life in the same way that Christ was risen. Now, I'm sure I lost some of you because it's very fancy and theological. So let's get a little more practical. Let me illustrate this, okay? Imagine you committed a crime, and it was a pretty serious crime, and you are declared guilty, and you deserve to be declared guilty. And so, therefore, you are sentenced to life behind bars in prison. And in that moment, what you realize is now you are legitimately defined by your past, by your mistakes, and your identity, quite simply, is basically you are a guilty prisoner. That is the scarlet letter etched on your metaphorical identity, guilty prisoner. And imagine a couple years down the line, the prisoner guard walks by, calls you by name, opens the door to your cell, flings it open, and says, hey, you there, someone's paid your penalty in full, you are now innocent, and you're free to go. In that moment, your identity has now changed from guilty prisoner and your identity is made new where you are now free and you are declared innocent and liberated to live outside of that cell that has shackled you for all those years. Now that imagery that I give, Paul is arguing to continue letting sin have mastery over your life and continuing to live the way you lived before Christ is like a free man choosing to live inside of a jail cell. That's what he's saying. The door has been flung open in the gospel, and yet you're still living inside prison. Now, what might this look like for some of us today? Well, let me get even a little deeper. And I think this is particularly the case for Asians because we have such a safe face, honor, shame culture. I would argue we all have our own versions of internal prison cells. And what I mean by that is whatever we choose to define ourselves with that weighs us down and hinders our ability to live in the fullness of life that God has intended for us to. Some of you, that internal cell and definition that you live by is you define yourself as damaged goods. That is a metaphorical identity you carry. Be it because of a past you're ashamed of or a mistake or mistakes you've made or bad decisions and so deep down inside, you're shackled because you always feel less than ideal and you cannot help but to hide in shame of who yourself believe yourself to be or in fear of what others might believe you to be. Others of you define yourself by that besetting habitual sin that is just so hard to overcome, be it anger, lust, envy, whatever it is. And the way you know that is because the dominant thought of how you identify yourself is that struggle. 
I am a, a luster. I am an envier. I am a depressed person. You literally become an identity of your struggle. And so you live this cycle of depression and discouragement because you think you are defined by that struggle. Or if you're like me, you define yourself by performance and achievement. Why? Because it is so hard for us. It's so deeply ingrained, particularly, again, for a lot of Asian culture. Many of us were taught that our identity and our worth comes from how good our grades are or how much money we make or our social reputation. And so there's this deep sense of self-condemnation that we are never good enough. How do you know this? We're the, the, predominantly the words that came to you about what you are or what you aren't. Because I'm guessing for a lot of you, it's about what you aren't. You get a B, why didn't you get an A? You get this job, why didn't you get that job? You get this house, why didn't you get that job? Why aren't you like this person? Why aren't you like that person? How come you can't be like this? How come you don't measure up that way? So your whole life is defined not by a confidence of assurance of who you are, but everything about insecurity and telling you what you're not. And that is shackling. And if you believe that, it will lash out in every sphere you have. Marriage, friendship, relationship. Because that's what shame does. It gets in protective mode. It lashes out when it's about to be exposed. And to all those things, Paul says, now you are made new in Christ. Which means that's not you anymore. The door has been flung open. You now share in the identity of Christ. Who is perfectly loved, perfectly secure, perfectly confident in his identity before the living God. And union with Christ means all that is true of Christ is true of you. And that is the heart of the gospel. To fight to believe and embrace that new identity in Christ. And then therefore, to live according to it. This is where Christianity is not religion. Religion says, fix it, get your act together, then come and we'll see if you can measure up. The gospel says, God came to you in your enslavery, in your insecurity, in all your sin, rescues you, makes you right, unites himself to you, and then says, now go and live freely. That's why it's very common to say the Christian life is an overflow. That's the first thing baptism symbolizes. The other two are very quick. The second thing that baptism signifies is that in Christ, we are placed in a new family. Okay, one text I'm going to use for the both points, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, 28. This is what it says. It says, so in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Now, it's important to know that in the biblical context and culture, one of the primary ways to understand baptism is not that it was this commitment between me and God, but actually they viewed it as a transfer from one familial identity to another one. Okay, so it was about me being part of the Bay family to now transferring my loyalty and my allegiance, to put it that way, to the family of Christ. And this is harder for us to see as significant in this hyper-individualized Western culture, but Eastern culture, uh, uh, ancient Near East culture, it was all extremely communal by nature. This is why the Bible doesn't say I can baptize myself. Okay. The, like if somebody said today, I'm going to go get baptized. So you go to your bathtub and you're like, I believe in God. I'll say, I don't know what you just did. It's really weird, but that is not baptism. You need to be baptized and it is common and normal to be baptized in the context of community. Baptized in the context of a local church. Because it symbolizes that you are now joining the spiritual community and family of God. 
Let me give a brief example of this, okay? Um, so just very briefly up there, this is a sister that got baptized last Easter. She accepted Christ at our church two years before that, okay? And many of you guys know about her. And we don't have that much in common, to be honest, me and the sister. But I kind of was able to journey a little bit through her journey and whatnot and understand kind of what was going on. And then seeing her share her testimony before our church, watching her share how God worked in her life, took her from her old self to her new self, washed them clean, buried them in Christ, raised her up in new life as the family of Christ in our family. That was actually the highlight of my year. It really was. Because from that moment, she became this essentially stranger to me to now one in Christ with me. And this is critical to grasp because this solo Lone Ranger Christianity where it's just about me and God that so many of us have grown accustomed to, it is an alien concept to Scripture. And this is why I would argue so many Christians today, they reach a short-circuiting ceiling of faith because they say, hey, I do my quiet times and devils between me and God, and I'm very meaningfully doing that. I pray to God, and I mean it when I pray to him, and yet I feel like there's such lack of vibrancy in my walk, and here's why. You're not baptized to be a solo Christian. You're not baptized to have an individual life, private relationship with Christ, because the New Testament unequivocally says and shows Christianity, it is a group project. We are baptized as family into one in Christ. We follow Christ together. We are baptized into the church and we care about each other as we journey in that way. So that's the second thing that baptism symbolizes. Now third, very briefly, not only a new identity, not only a new family, but a new purpose. Now there's another verse in that text that I want to talk about. It says, not only are you Baptized into family. But verse 20 says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, if you're like me, when you see something like Abraham's seed, you just kind of skip over it because it sounds like for seminary and nerds. Amen? Say, I don't, I don't know about that stuff. I don't, I don't care about that stuff. Well, at our church, we want to help our church to be equipped to actually be biblically literate. Okay? I talked to some pastors and we joke, you know what our congregation loves? They love FNF sermons. And I was like, what is an FNF sermon? Feel it and forget it. I want to come in on a Sunday, I want to feel something, and I want to forget about it. Because I want to live the rest of my life the way I want to live it. Not at our church. At our church, we want to build your biblical literacy. We want you to understand the story of Scripture. And we literally just finished a series through Genesis. So I'm going to take a brief moment to educate you What does it mean that in Christ we are Abraham's seed? And it's absolutely powerful to recognize. Well, if the scripture is a story, one of the most important parts of that story is seen in Genesis 12, where we preached on and we referenced constantly throughout the series, God has a plan for this broken world. He's not going to just leave it broken and fallen and sinful. But he says, I have a plan to heal it, to redeem it. And I'm not going to do it myself. I'm going to do it through people, specifically a family. And he calls this guy named Abram and says, I am going to make a covenant with you. And the way that I'm going to do this is through you and your seed and your family, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. You're going to be my agents, and you're going to be the family and nation that's going to bring about healing, restoration, and redemption to an otherwise broken and fallen world. And from that moment, we see Abram goes from Abram to Abraham. And here's the key that I want to harp on. He goes from being this wandering, purposeless, individual, self-seeking man 
to now having this renewed sense of purpose and identity in life. Can any of you relate to Abram pre-covenant? Wandering, aimless, purposeless. Just living life, going with the flow. Whatever your Instagram feed or your OC Moms group or whatever your peers say you should be doing, that's just what you do. Mindless, aimless. And can I ask you, how has that been going for your joy lately? I know we talk about it a lot, but I must reference it. Isn't this what the new Netflix show Beef is about? Starts by starting off as, oh, this is just about road rage. But the reason people are so drawn to these characters and attracted by this plot is because they represent us. Deep down inside, aimless, purposeless, discontent. It doesn't matter if you have it all on paper. Everyone is hungry for this sense of fulfillment and purpose. And what Paul says You can go from coast to coast, relationship to relationship, job to job, and you're not going to find that purpose. Because that's not what you were created for. But Paul says in this text, through baptism, our aimless, self-seeking way of living is crucified. It's put to death. And we are now given a new way to live with a new purpose and a new agenda, and it is a glorious, everlasting purpose. Because when you are baptized, you're not just baptized into a horizontal family, you're baptized into the redemptive historical family of Abraham by faith. And what that does is it takes your seemingly random storyline that's just searching for meaning, and it absorbs you into this redemptive plan and privilege that God has done to bring about redemption and healing to the whole world, which is an eternal, lasting work of the building of the kingdom of God and the salvation of the lost. That is the purpose we are absorbed into. And that should excite you if you are a follower of Christ. We are blessed to be a blessing and every morning we have a reason to wake up. That's crazy to think about. When you see someone baptized, what you are seeing is an individual literally not only become a part of God's family, but become a part of God's plan to save the world, and to make disciples. That's the third thing. New identity, new family, new purpose. Now, again, I understand, as nice as this all sounds, you still might be like, okay, cool, but I still don't want to be baptized. Or like, I still don't see what the point is or what the power of it is. Like, if you've been baptized already, maybe you're wondering, like, hey, I was baptized. You're making it sound a lot nicer than it really is. Like, it was just like a one and done a couple years ago. Nothing much really came out of it. And maybe you're thinking, okay, let's just say I do get baptized. What's going to come out of that? Like, is it going to actually impact my life? And I would argue, absolutely. Which leads to the final point. So my wife Angela and I, we just celebrated our seven-year anniversary of being married together. It's crazy to think that it's been seven years already. And so one thing I find myself doing, as a lot of couples do when wedding anniversaries roll around, is you think about the wedding day, you think about the vows that were made, you think about how you gained a lot of weight since then, right? There's a lot of things that goes in your mind. But for sure, it's a time of reflection over the marriage. And especially when life gets very busy, be it with parenting, be it with just all the stuff that you're responsible for, which just piles on, or maybe seasons where marriage isn't as easy as you thought it would be. Isn't there something about the wedding day and the vows? It has this anchoring effect. Again, it doesn't solve everything, but it has this anchoring and recentering effect for marriage. 
And going back to the COVID wedding example I gave earlier, when I asked those married couples, hey, when is your wedding anniversary? They actually kind of pause a little because they're like, well, we kind of had like our, our COVID wedding and we had our actual wedding. And I was surprised that most of them actually say, though, that they, they personally view their public wedding as the day that they got married, even though legally they were married before. Because there's something about the fact that prior to that public vow with friends and family and witnesses, it just did not feel wholesome. And I can understand why. It's because this public wedding becomes this kind of anchoring, identifiable, symbolic marker and event that when times get tough, you can reference, you can think about. You can think about your husband, your wife on that day, the vows you made. I'm going to love you. Even though in this moment, I hate you. But I remember that where I held your hand. I symbolically told you till death was part. And we all understand. It's not an uncommon question to ask someone, hey, when did you get married? But I thought about it. And by comparison, I realized it should be comparatively normal to ask a Christian, when did you get baptized? Right? I hope I've made that case through the sermon. Because I would argue baptism has the power to have a very similar anchoring effect in your spiritual walk as your wedding does for your marriage. So by way of application, kind of go over circle from the beginning, there's a few encouragements I would give that I mentioned at the start of the sermon. First is this. If you are a follower of Christ and you have been baptized, I pray that, number one, you see the glory of what happened on that day and you see the beauty of it, but also that it makes you more excited to witness the baptism of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and to celebrate with them as they join the family of God. And to see baptism is not just something that is done to others, but a God-given opportunity to remember your own vows to Christ in the same way that when you are at a wedding with your spouse and they're doing vows, does it not make you reflect on your own? To, in a sense, remember and renew your vows. Again, living in remembrance, as was beautifully said before. The second application is if you are all of Christ and you are baptized as an infant only, I want to first caveat and affirm, we have brothers and sisters in Christ that believe this, fellowship with them, and I, by no means do I want to say the tone of our church is this prideful, self-righteous, we know everything true and everyone else is all wrong. But at the same time, I hope that you can see that as pastors, we are called to teach what we believe the Bible says about this important topic. And it shouldn't be a surprise because all our members know our statement of faith, right guys, right? It's been in there all along. Some of you guys are like, I've never seen that in my life. What is that thing? Well, we do have one. And again, more than anything else, we say this time and time again. What would encourage us more than anything else is that you care to explore Scripture on your own. And if you need help with that, if you're able, join the seminar. Test your own conviction. Test it with Scripture. So that at the very least, it's not just religious exercise, which I think is the worst thing to be. Third is, if you are not a follower of Jesus, first off, we're so glad you are here. Obviously, I hope that you would consider what was preached and you consider what the message behind baptism is. I would even encourage you to come two weeks from now, join in the baptism service, because I think something very powerful and meaningful happens in the baptism service. And obviously, again, there's no better invitation than to come to acknowledge your need for Christ, repent, and to be baptized. And I would really hope that instead of saying, oh man, those Christians are weird, that you can really see that baptism, it's not just this strange religious thing, but really like a wedding, when you really grasp and understand what's going on, it's really this beautiful, powerful, symbolic ceremony, and embedded in it is an invitation extended to you, 
with the same offer that all of these people have accepted in Christ. And last one, if you are a follower of Jesus and you have not been baptized, the clearest exhortation is, I encourage you, get baptized. Get baptized. In one sense, I think there really should be no excuse. If there is some sort of barrier or hindrance, I, would, I pray you wouldn't ignore it. Talk to one of us. Talk to a fellow brother and sister in Christ about getting baptized. Again, this is not a guilt or shame or awkward thing at all. Again, because I get some of you may have been Christian for a long time and you're like, did I pass that window where it's actually like doable? Just know there's nothing but joy and celebration and a strengthening in the church when a fellow brother and sister is obedient and gets baptized. Now, to that point, as I close, I get for many of us, it feels strange. Because I know a lot of you personally, I know you accepted Christ a long time ago. Again, I don't know the exact state of you, but if you're like me, you're probably experiencing what a lot of COVID wedding couples went through, which is, it feels weird because everybody knows we're married. Everybody knows we've been married for well over a year now, and yet we're saying, let's celebrate a public wedding together. One couple in particular I know that went to this church, many of you know them, they went through so many setbacks and delays, it was so sad. Like they set a date, it got pushed back, the venue was having trouble with them, it, like weather complications, everything was going against doing it, and they were almost kind of just getting comfortable and like, okay, whatever, like everybody knows we're married, we're already married, but they decided, hey, let's push through, let's do this so we can really have it be a time with friends and family, and they pressed on, and I was able to attend some of you did too. And when they finally had their wedding ceremony, it was such a beautiful and memorable time for not only them, but for their whole community who had been walking with them. Who walked with them, saw them, got a chance to witness the journey that they took in Christ towards each other. To witness the powerful symbol of them exchanging their vows, becoming one in front of their family and community. And it was worth it. Some of you have been married to Jesus for a while now, and praise God for that, but you haven't had your wedding yet, to use that analogy. And can I encourage you, Jesus is saying through the word that he wants a public relationship. He wants you to care that people know that you love him and you follow him. He calls for it. He longs for it. Because he does that for you. He's not a private savior. He is a very public savior historically on the cross for all the world to see for you, for your sins to be forgiven. But even today, the risen Christ is publicly saying, I acknowledge my people before all princes and powers and evil spirits and demons and the universe because that's who I want to be to them. I publicly commit to them and he longs for the same for you. And if you're curious, well, is there somebody that did this at our church? That did this awkward delay thing? Absolutely, there's at least one person. It's this person. It's not this one. It's that guy, which is me. Talk about ruined punchline, right? But it's me. I went through that. I went through the, oh, man, this is really awkward. And, and imagine, I'm the pastor, right? But I really thought about it. And, and let, me, let me make this clear. I had to make sure it wasn't just a religious obligation. It wasn't just that I felt like this weird thing that I have to do. So it took a bit of time for me to wrestle and pray. And that's what we encourage for everyone. Wrestle with your own conscience and your own conviction. But I came to a place personally where I really wanted to be baptized. And it's going to be a special moment for you the rest of my life. Because the other picture that I had up there that doesn't show, that day of baptism was one of the worst days of my life, actually. 
You know, you would think, oh man, when I see the pictures of my baptism, I'm thinking, oh, how much I love Jesus. That day, everything went wrong. It was one of the worst days of my life. And I'm so thankful that God ordained that way because I'm going to forever remember in spite of that, in your worst days, your old is gone. And in Christ through baptism, you are made new. And I hope baptism properly understood is first and foremost not just something you have to do, but as a follower of Christ, something that you get to do. And so like I mentioned, we have a seminar. We're going to have sign-ups. Nothing would make me more overflowed with joy if members or people forced this issue on us pastors to have to do baptisms more often. Nothing would strengthen the church more, I think, than if our church continues to practice the two ordinances faithfully, Lord's Supper and baptism. So as I invite the praise team up, if we can take a moment just to reflect and pray. I think before even just the act of baptism, if we can consider the beauty of the gospel once again, as explained through Romans 6 and visualized through baptism. Maybe reflect and ask the Spirit to reveal what are maybe some of those self-made prison cells that are shackling you now. And can you realize that in Christ, the door has been flung open. You do not need to live in light of that self-made definition identity. That you are freed in Christ. And secondly, just to consider wherever you land, to be curious why God has called the church and all believers to be baptized and what this signifies and where it lands for you. So let's just take a moment to reflect and I'll pray for us in closing.